We are going to get back into 1 Peter next week. We're going to return to our series on 1 Peter next week. But um, I wanted to take New Year's Day um, as, as an opportunity to, to consider the, this whole idea of resolutions. Um, there certainly is a resoluteness about the Christian life, about the Christian faith, but resoluteness that goes much deeper um, than, than the resolutions we typically make. And perhaps, perhaps the reasons why we, we, uh, we so often fail at our resolutions is that uh, they don't go deep enough. Um, you know, I, I, I suppose there's some people here who, who actually make resolutions and keep them. Um, maybe you're one of those people. But uh, for the most part, um, most of us make them and don't keep them. I, I, I a sarcastic friend say, say to me, I can't, I can't believe it's already been a year since I failed to become a new me again. And uh, I think that's probably how we feel. Um, we fail, but perhaps we fail because we aren't truly interested in becoming a new me, but becoming a modified me. Um, our resolutions are much more about behavioral, behavioral modification rather than attacking the root that leads to the behavior. Resolutions in the Christian life are not just about the, uh, the manifestation of the problem, but, but the Bible calls us into a resoluteness to attack the root of the problem. Christian resolutions are not just, I'm going to get healthier and lose weight. It is putting to death the gluttonous desires and habits of my heart. It's not just this year I'm going to uh, be more disciplined, um, get up earlier, read more, these, these things. It is I'm putting to death the slothful desires of my heart. It isn't just this year I'm going to be a better husband and father. It's, it's I'm going to put to death the selfishness that is wrecking havoc on my life and family. And so this New Year's, I want to leverage, what I, the reason I'm doing this is really what I want to do is leverage the cultural habit um, of this day that, that brings a, a feeling of change. I want to, in other words, the benefit of preaching on New Year's Day is I have an audience that is uniquely hungering to be different. Like you, you, everybody here on this day in some capacity wants to be different. And so I want to take advantage of that and uh, leverage that desire to invite you to redefine your resolutions biblically. It will be, uh, like I said, it'll be more of a topical sermon than most of my preaching. I'm going to ground us here in Romans 8, um, and, and I'll explain why that is in a second. But we'll be jumping around um, quite a bit. Um, but, but here's why Romans 8, uh, particularly verse 13. Um, it's a classic verse. Verse 13 is a classic verse that um, caused my favorite Puritan, uh, John Owen, who my uh, third son is named after. I, I promise I know my kid's name. My third son is named after. Um, it caused my favorite Puritan to write, um, honestly, my favorite Puritan work. It's called Mortification of Sin and Believer. It's a treatise that John Owen wrote on that one verse, verse 8. 813. Uh, mortification is a Puritan word for killing. So he wrote, a, he wrote a, an entire um, essay on one verse called the killing of sin in the believer. And the believer is what's key. Romans 8.13 follows Romans 8.1, of course. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So after Paul pronounces his famous no condemnation, he immediately moves into a section about what does it look like for those who have no condemnation in Jesus to live 
And it is all about putting to death the sins that Jesus has already put to death on our behalf. And he's deadly serious about this expectation. Literally deadly. I mean that. He used the play on words here to set up kind of a life, life or death scenario. You can, you can hear it there in verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's this juxtaposition of life and death and choosing which will it be. And John Owen famously summed up that one verse this way. Basically, you've got this choice. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And so this is the resolution of the Christian life. Not behavioral resolutions, but mortification resolutions. And I want to give us some help with that this evening. Um, I'll be honest with you. This is, this is um, for if, if, you are, um, if you're here and you don't identify yourself as a follower of Jesus, you're not sure you are where you are with that. Um, you've stumbled into family talk tonight. Um, I, I'm, I'm using this as an occasion to talk to um, our church, God's people, those, those whose life ambition is to follow Jesus. I'm using this as an occasion to talk to us um, about putting to death sin in our lives, which may be a strange concept to you, but that's, that's what the Christian life is. There is a mean streak to Christianity, but it's not toward others outside of ourselves, it's towards ourselves. There is a jihad, there is a holy war within Christianity, but it's not against others, it's against me, the enemy within. So our job, our aim in life is to put to death our sins. And tonight I'm going to help our people, um, or help our people toward that end. It, but but I, I, would, I would encourage you, if, if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you to listen to it and say, well, what a, what a strange concept of religion, where these people see the, the greatest problem is not out there, but here. Um, which is true. And what I'm going to do is basically what I've done is I've, take, I've taken Owen's work and condensed it down to four principles um, that I've actually ordered around an acronym. That's how, that's how uh, practical and topical I'm being tonight. I've actually got an acronym for us. Um, and here it is. And I'll go through it and then we're going to just spend some time going through it. The acronym is KILL, which is very morbid, but um, it fits the occasion. How do you kill your sins? Kill. Knowledge of the enemy, intensity of the fight, labor of the ordinary, loved of our God. Let me go through each of those using, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use a passage or two to speak to each one. And I'm also going to quote a lot from John Owen and um, expound upon him and, and kind of hope, hopefully deliver his thoughts to you. Um, because whenever you if, you, if you, if you go from here and say, boy, I'm going to go get this John Owen guy. He's, he's tough to read. He really is. I'm warning you up front. And so I'm going to try to deliver his content to us um, from, this, from this essay that's meant the world to me. Okay, so uh, let's go through these. Knowledge of the enemy. Uh, the fight to kill our sin begins with knowledge of the enemy. In Genesis 4, when sin is just starting to take over this world, the Lord says something very profound to Cain. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Not you must resist it. Not you must say no. Not you must flee. You must rule it. As if sin is this enemy to be conquered, to be destroyed, to be ruled over. And indeed, this is the way the Bible imagines the Christian life, as a spiritual battle, again, with, with the enemy within. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. Our, our battle is not against other people, 
other cultures, other things. It is a spiritual battle against the forces of evil. So if sin is the enemy to be conquered, then we need to understand the ways of our enemy. We have to understand how it functions. You know this, whether it's a coach studying film or a, a general studying the ways of a terrorist network. We know the importance of knowing our enemy, the ways of our enemy. And the same is true in spiritual warfare. And so what are the ways of our sin? Well, here's where Owen is really brilliant and helpful. And he has a lot to say, but I'm going to condense it down to two things that, that we have to understand about our sin. Um, two thoughts, two things we must know about our sin. That is personal and it's progressive. What do I mean when I say it's personal? Our depravity, our fallenness um, is far more complex than we realize. Um, we tend to imagine sin in a very disconnected general sense. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, we all got sin, and it never gets personal. It just stays in this theoretical general realm. When in fact our depravity is far more complex, our stories are unique, our struggles are unique, our weaknesses are unique, our temptations are unique, and we need to know ourselves and our unique sinful tendencies. Owen says it like this, when a sin falls in with natural constitutions, with a suitable course of life, and with occasions, that sin grows violent and impetuous above all others. Here's what he's saying. It's not just sin in a general sense. He says, this is what's dangerous. It is when a sin comes in contact with our natural constitution, meaning my temperament, my weakness, my fears, my anxieties, who I am as a person, where I'm naturally weak, along with a suitable course of life, meaning our story, the providences of life. Where, where, are, we being, where, where are we? Where, where does sin find us at the, at the moment? And with an occasion, meaning the timely opportunity, a temptation to sin. When those things align, it is a recipe for disaster. He goes on to say this, This is the folly of men. They set themselves with all earnestness and diligence against the manifestation of sin while leaving the root untouched, perhaps even undiscovered. What he's saying there is we focus on the manifestation outworkings of sin and ignore the personal root issues that's giving birth to the sin, perhaps even leaving those undiscovered our whole lives. I cannot overemphasize the significance of self-knowledge when it comes to putting sin to death. Do you have the courage to know yourself? Do you have the courage to see past the false self that you have been hiding behind all these years and finally face the truth about yourself? If you keep pretending, if you keep ignoring, if you keep suppressing, if you keep hiding, then you will never be killing, at least in any lasting, heart-changing way. So how do we discover ourselves? Okay, we got to know ourselves. I got to know my unique struggles and sinful tendencies and all these different things. How do we do that? Well, you might think that the application is a journey into introspective self-discovery. Just get alone and go on a, on a journal retreat and find yourself. But the problem is the Bible views our hearts as deceptive above all else. Um, the Apostle John even straight up says that we deceive ourselves. What a fascinating concept that is. 
I am prone to lie to myself about myself and believe those lies. That's how deceptive we are. So introspection may only deepen your deception. According to the Bible, you want to discover yourself? Internal discovery comes by external means. When David, King David, was embroiled in an affair, an entanglement of lies and violence and deceit, he didn't even recognize what he was doing. He was just going along with the lies. But he did understand what he's doing when God sent him a prophet to rebuke him and call him out. Psalm 51, that beautiful psalm of repentance of David that he wrote after, after he realized his sin. Psalm 51 did not come about because David got alone with his journal. Psalm 51 came about because a prophet looked at him and said, you're the man. Not you're the man. We use that term in a good way. <laughs> if you read the story, it's a bad way. You don't want to be that man. You're the one who's doing this. So if you want to know yourself, don't ask yourself. Ask others is the point. Actually, first ask God. Search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Do you have the courage to pray that prayer? Because he will answer it. And he'll answer it through his people. So ask God, and then ask God's people for the answer to the prayer. Who, who are you going to ask? I wouldn't just ask anybody. Be careful with that. It's a, it's a, it's a very um, sensitive, vulnerable um, could be even dangerous thing. So who am I going to ask? Um, I'll, I'll commend to you three types of people. Ask those closest. If you're married, ask your spouse and receive their words with teachable hearts, not defensiveness. If you're a child, ask your parents in the same way. If you're a parent, ask your child. That's scary. Ask your child. What do you see? Ask your roommates, your best friends. Those closest to you, ask those who know you on the deepest level and aren't afraid of what they find and still love you. Ask those closest. How about this one? Ask those ordained. This is one you won't hear often. We have lost the uniqueness and authority of the prophetic power of the church in our day. But we actually do believe that God has uniquely equipped and ordained elders to speak into our lives. I trust you might say, well, that's, that's convenient. You're one of those. So <laughs> it's convenient for you to say. But here's the thing. Um, if you want to know who I trust, Marshall, Justin, the elders of our church, if they tell me something and I disagree with them, guess who I believe? Them, not me. Because I trust them. I trust what they say. Ask those that God has ordained to be over you as an authority what they see. Seek out, a, seek out Marshall. Seek out an elder of this campus. Open your life bare to them. Here it is in all of its messy glory and ask them, what do they see? And trust through the doctrine of ordination that they see you better than you see you. How about this one? Ask those anointed. Um, I have in mind those that just God is uniquely gifted to do that. Um, off Christian counseling. Um, a good Christian counselor is very helpful towards this end. Um, I've benefited from counseling. There are people trained and anointed by God um, with prophetic gifts. I don't mean like seeing the future prophetic. I mean like uh, speaking prophetically into our lives with the gift of discernment is what I'm saying. The gift of discernment to evaluate you. Make use of them. Let a prophet speak and trust them more than you trust yourself. 
Marshall knows people in our church and professionals who, who have that gift. And, and, he can, and he can point you in the direction. Open up and say, what do you see? So ask those closest, ask those ordained, ask those anointed. And then use that knowledge in the fight against your personal struggles and sins. What this does is it leads to applications that are unique to you. I have a life profile that I'll be updating this week because I do so at the beginning of every new year. And on it are commitments and convictions that are personal to me that guard against my personal struggles. Some of them, if you were to read some of them, you'd say, that's weird. Why is that on there? And perhaps you'd say, that's kind of legalistic, those, those commitments you make. But I'm not, ask, I'm not asking or expecting or demanding you to keep those convictions. That's what would be legalistic. No, what I'm saying is these are my unique struggles, my failures, my weaknesses, and I need to have these. You really should have your own based upon your own knowledge of your personal sinful patterns. So sin is personal. The other thing we need to know is that sin is progressing. What do I mean by that? It's this. Temptation is ever before us. But what is so important to understand is that the strength of temptation is not always the same. And that's very important. In other words, sin progresses in power and strength. Here's what Owen says. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression if it could. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if it grew to its head. Therefore, rise mightily against the first actings of thy distemper, its conception. Suffer it not to gain the least ground. Do not say, thus far it shall go and no further. If it have allowance for one step, it will take another. Here's what he's saying. Sin is constantly growing in strength and it will continue to do so if it has allowance. Inappropriate thoughts will turn into flirtatious acts, will turn into texting, will turn into dinners out, will turn into full-blown infidelity. And then you come to your senses and you say, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I have to stop this. Well, I have news for you. It's infinitely more difficult to put to death an affair than it is to put to death an inappropriate thought that got this whole thing started. It is infinitely more difficult to put to death a lifestyle of deception a web of lies than the temptation to first deceive. So here's the obvious application. Rise mightily against thy first actings. Don't play games with sin. We dabble, we flirt, we experiment, we hide, we try not to let it get out of control. We take a strategy of appeasement rather than a strategy of war. And all the while, this thing is growing in strength and power. If it has allowance for one step, it will take another. Put your sin to death at its first inception when it is weakest. And if you, are, if you have achieved a measure of victory over your sin, you have a, 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 a unique struggle that you've been fighting the, 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 the road, Calvary Road, the cruciform path, and you've developed a life of, of relative freedom from that, good, kick your sin while it's down and weak. Owen says this about those who are experiencing a measure of freedom. Such a one never thinks that his sin is dead because it's quiet, but labor still to give it new wounds every day. So know your enemy. It is both personal and progressing. Second, and the rest are shorter. Second, intensity of the fight. 
Uh, Jesus says this twice in Matthew 5 and 18. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Now, of course, we don't take our Lord's language here literal, but we do take His principle literal. It will take extreme measures, extreme methods, extreme efforts to kill your personal sins and struggles. Sin never dies of natural causes. Severity, extreme severity is the only disposition in this fight. Paul, again, speaking metaphorically, says it like this in 1 Corinthians 9. I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave. One of the consequences of living lives of ease and comfort where our biggest frustrations in life are like the drive through line or something is that we don't have a category for extreme, uncomfortable, disciplined striving. Everything is just so easy and it's getting easier by the day. But the problem is that there is no easy remedy to sin. Sins are only put to death by extreme, especially our personal sins from point one, those things that plague us personally. These are only put to death by extreme fighting because to be honest with you, that's the nature of the one that's after you. Owen says this, if sin be watchful, strong, and always at work in the business of killing our souls, and we be slothful, negligent, and foolish in preceding its ruin, can we expect a comfortable outcome? He says, there is not a day that sin foils or is foiled, prevails or is prevailed upon, and it will be that way while we live in this world. Sin is always acting, always conceiving, always seducing, always tempting. And so do you make it your daily work to kill it? Be always at it while you do live. Cease not a day from this work. And then his famous line, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Do you see his point? Your enemy never takes a day off and so neither can we. We aren't playing games here. Every day sin is trying to destroy your life. To destroy your home, to make shipwreck of your faith. You cannot afford to be lazy in this fight. Our culture breeds lazy souls, and we must refuse that tendency inside us all. We will have eternity in heaven to rest from the labors against sin, from that fight. But for now, we don't have that luxury. So the deal is, is when sin will leave you alone, you can leave it alone. Until then, we wake up every day with extreme resolve. And when I say extreme, I do have in mind, cut off your hand and gouge out your eye measures. Um, consider your personal struggles from point one and consider a plan of action against that. It is going to take extreme measures of some kind. Perhaps you need daily accountability for a season. Perhaps an entire relationship just needs to end. Perhaps the television or computer or Facebook account just needs to go. Just can't do it. Perhaps an entire career change. Perhaps you need to to do something crazy, a move or something that nobody else understands. But I'm talking about things that nobody will understand unless they have an equal passion to see sin die. Perhaps it's finally admitting that it's gotten so out of hand that you need serious, intensive, maybe even professional help. For some, the most extreme thing you could do is lay down your pride and admit you need help. Owen says this, this is very profound, hundreds of years before we talk this way, he says this about addiction. 
When a sin hath laid long in the heart, corrupting, festering, cankering, it brings the soul to a woeful condition. It has grown so familiar to the mind and conscience that you, that you don't even startle at it as a strange or evil thing. In such a case, an ordinary course of mortification will not work. 21st century application of the wisdom of Jono, and you may need to go to rehab. In such a case, normal forms of mortification just aren't going to work. You need to drop out of school and go to rehab. You need to quit your job and go to rehab. This is the type of things I'm talking about. I don't know what it will look like for you. I really don't. Your pastors and elders are certainly available to help you figure that out. But this much I know, God is calling you right now in your life to do something so extreme that people around you will think you're crazy. But that's what it takes. Knowledge of the enemy. Intensity of the fight. Labor of the ordinary. In Colossians 3, Paul talks about putting to death our sin. But he talks about something else. He also talks about the other dynamic. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Christian obedience is putting to death and pursuing life. Killing sin and seeking God. And the second half is just as important. If it is neglected, it will render the first half useless. You can try to put yourself to death all you want. If that is not matched by another pursuit, it will always fail. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells an interesting parable. Um, it's an unfamiliar one, and, and it's fascinating. He says, When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my former house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What is he talking about? The principle is this. That if you expel the evil, if you put to death the sin, and then don't turn around and fill the empty void with righteousness, then evil will return even stronger. The killing of sin must be accompanied by the cultivation of righteousness. So how do we do this? How do we seek the things that are above? How do we fill ourselves with righteousness? Well, Owen recognizes what the Bible makes so clear, that God has ordained means by which he can be found. He says this, spiritually sick men cannot sweat out their distemper with effort. I love that language. He's saying you can't white knuckle this thing. There's nothing, he says, there is nothing in religion that has any efficacy. But there are means by which God has ordained. In other words, God has appointed means where he is found, where he helps us, where he fills us. And we must implore these means of grace. The most extraordinary thing you can do is live a life laboring in the ordinary disciplines of the Christian life. This is the most extraordinary thing you can do is to just be a good old boring Christian. Prayer, scripture, fellowship, community, neighborhood groups, the sacraments. I cannot overemphasize how powerful these seemingly mundane habits are and, and they must be central to your life. They must be central to your life. I'll tell you, you don't know it's happening, but it's happening. You are being guarded from all kinds of evil and you don't even know it. 
Now, you might say, oh great, another New Year's application where I, I got to read my Bible more and pray more and all these things I'm terrible at doing. You know a good way to make sure that, that the ordinary Christian life takes place? Order your life around Sunday worship. This God-ordained buffet of the means of grace. Of course, make personal habits, but be uncompromising in this one. Corporate worship. You may not notice it, but the ordinary rhythm of going to church is saving you and your life from so much evil. But I'll tell you, if you when you will notice it, is if you were to stop. That's when people notice it. Neglect the means of grace. Neglect personal communion with God. Neglect the power of Christian fellowship and community. Neglect weekly corporate worship, and you will wake up one day and say, what have I become? My life is just intertwined with besetting sins. My heart is so callous. My soul is so numb. Look at the mess that I've made of my life. And it happened by neglecting the boring stuff. Knowledge of the enemy, intensity of the fight, labor of the ordinary. Finally, within this spiritual battle against sin, never, ever, ever, ever forget that you are loved of God. In your fight to put to death sin, never forget the love of the one that you have sinned against. In this fight to glorify God in your life, never forget the love of God that permeates your life. All of this sin talk, all of this heavy, weighty sin talk. And if you're a, uh, again, if you're visiting, if, you, if, if Christianity is new to you, you might think, man, these guys are, uh, my son, my, uh, my son's had a Sunday school lesson at our church, and it's like they had a heart, and they, they made them color their heart black, and they talked about, you know, the darkness of our own heart and sin, and, and he goes, my son goes, whew, y'all really wear that out around here. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we do. We do. We do. And tonight, I'm wearing it out, all this sin talk. But let me just take a moment, and you can just sit there and listen to the word, word proclaimed. Let's take a moment and bask in the good news of what God has done to our sin. Just hear the word of the Lord. Exodus 34. Who is your God? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for you. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. They are no more. Isaiah 1, come, come beloved of God, come let us reason together, declares the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Hebrews 10, Every Old Testament priest stands at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Jesus Christ had offered for all time a once and for all single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. And he sat down because the work is over. Romans 8, the same chapter. There is, there is no condemnation not a little condemnation, not some condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Acts 13, the apostles 
preach this to the ancient world. Let it be known to you, dear brothers and sisters, that through Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. You can have your sins forgiven. John 19, our Lord, hanging from the cross, it is finished. Any attempt to put sin to death while forgetting that sin has already been put to death in Jesus Christ are in vain. Never forget the love of the Lord Jesus Christ whom you have sinned against. Do you know what John Owen says is the greatest sin a believer can commit? Big bad Puritan John Owen with all of his language and heavy thoughts. He says this, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay upon your heavenly Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is to not believe that He loves you. In all your battles, in all your struggles, in all your failures and successes, never for one second can you forget that God loves you, that God has forgiven you of every sin, past, present, and future that you are trying to kill. If you want to strengthen the power of sin, I'll tell you how to do it. If you want to strengthen the power of the enemy, then believe that you are not forgiven of that sin you're fighting against. It is grace that motivates us to kill our sins. It is kindness that leads us to repentance. And that grace and that kindness is, is, is here right now, as it always is, before you, inviting you. What's so special about January 1? Why don't we make our resolutions on, like, March the 9th? What's the deal with January 1? It has this cultural feeling of newness. No matter what you've done, people feel like they have a clean slate, an opportunity to start over. There's just something incredibly powerful and freeing about the idea of newness. Well, guess what? His mercy is new each morning. The gospel has rendered every day with the feeling of January 1. You can start tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how abominable your actions have been. I don't care how addicted you are. I don't care if you have destroyed your life and the lives of those closest to you. All I care about is what is offered to you in Jesus Christ, which is a grace that is greater than all of your sons. You're not allowed to say to him that you've used up all your chances. You're not allowed to say he won't receive you back. You're not allowed to say it's too late for you. God gets to make that call, and He made that call at Calvary. He loves you. He died for you. And He will welcome you back. Now, what you will discover in the blessed sweetness of that grace and good news is not just consolation in the fight, but a strength and power in the fight. One last time, quoting from Owen. Bring thy sins to the gospel, not just for relief, but for conviction. Look on him whom thou hast pierced, and say to thy soul, what have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace, what can I say to my dear Lord Jesus? What a haunting question. What can I say to my dear Lord Jesus bleeding for me? The one thing I cannot say is thanks for the grace, now I get to sin. 
No Christian says that. No lover of Jesus thinks that way in response to grace. Instead, grace does the opposite. It doesn't lead us to an indulgence of sin, but an absolute loathing of sin. Nothing will cause you to hate your sin more than to see him bleed for your sins. What can we say to our dear Lord Jesus? All I know to say is thank you. Forevermore, thank you. And my life's ambition and devotion will be to kill the sins that killed my Savior. Let me pray. May your kindness lead us to repentance. May this be a year where our whole church community collectively gets to know ourselves, intensifies this battle, labors in the ordinary, and remembers your love. Lord, help us to put to death the sins that put our Savior to death. Fill us with this ordinary means of grace, your sacrament. Fill us with your righteousness. Remind us of your death that we might hate our sin even more. In Jesus' name, amen.